0: One of the things that I do not like admitting, uh, certainly to myself and certainly publicly, is I really like to be comfortable. Um, I don't say that out loud, but I am now, but I really like to be comfortable. I don't like difficult things in my life. I don't want things to be difficult. I don't want things to be difficult in relationships or difficult in family or difficult at work or difficult with schedules. I realize that I might be a product of the culture that I came from, which, by the way, we're all in some way a product of the culture that we come from, but we come from a culture that loves to be comfortable. And I'm speaking just North America right now. Uh, I'm speaking to our American mindset, American culture, where people that just loves comfort, loves to be comfortable. We'll spend money that we don't have on things that promise to give us some greater comfort. Or we'll work jobs that we don't really like to ensure that we get the resources that we need so that we can have a level of comfort that we think we want. Or we'll just entertain ourselves for hours and hours and hours on things like Netflix or Hulu or social media in order to distract us from the things that often bring discomfort so we don't have to deal with that. But as I've been thinking about my desire for comfort, It dawned on me afresh this week, very simple thought. Well, Michael, you're a Christian. (laughs) You're a Christian. Meaning you follow Jesus, which means there's nothing comfortable about being a Christian. There's nothing comfortable about being a Christian. When Jesus says, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, he is telling anyone and everyone that would follow him that. It is going to be about self-denial. Do not make your life about you. And when he says, take up your cross, he's saying, and it's going to be a painful road that you're going to have to walk if you're going to follow me. And then he says, follow me, which means, hey, you don't get to be the leader of your life. Follow me means you're going to follow someone else, namely Jesus. And so Jesus couldn't have made it any clearer that, Being a Christian would not be a life marked by being comfortable or not marked by just convenience. And so this is what I've been really wrestling with this past week and thinking about this letter that we're looking at. Why am I so comfortable? If I know that being a Christian is not comfortable, it's a life marked of self-denial and a hard road to walk and a life where I'm not ultimately in charge of my life, then why do I find myself so comfortable? Am I somehow, way missing something, or maybe have I allowed just the cultural expectations of comfort to shape a walk with God that doesn't really cost me all that much? And I want this to be something we can wrestle with together. Are we somehow missing something as a church? Have we allowed the cultural desires of comfort or convenience to somehow shape how we collectively as people walk with God. So this morning we're looking at letter number two in Revelation chapter two in this series called Dear Genesis. And this letter specifically is written to a people, men and women who are Christians, who are suffering great hardship, intense persecution. And they're suffering hardship and intense persecution for one reason alone. And the reason is because they're Christians. They are suffering intensely. They're being persecuted intensely just because they are Christians. The church that we're going to be talking about this morning is called the Church in Smyrna. And just to put it in modern day context, this is a city that still exists today. It's the city of Izmir, which is in Turkey on the northern coast of turkey it's the third largest populated third most populated city in turkey today and why this city in particular the church in smyrna was such a hotbed for persecution is cuz this city was loved by rome and it was populated with a lot of jews and so the men and women from rome did not like christians and men and women who grew up in jewish background did not like christians either And so this city where men and women who were seeking to follow Christ were being persecuted so heavily is because it was the perfect storm of Romans and Jews coming together to persecute, cause pain, hurt, and suffering to this church. Now, before we read this letter to this church in Smyrna, I very quickly wanted to just make clear when I'm talking about suffering, I'm not talking about just general suffering. Maybe a helpful way to think about suffering is like this. I think about it in three different ways. Sometimes we will go through suffering because of our own sinful, selfish choices. Sometimes the suffering is self-inflicted. If I decide to cheat in a relationship or steal at work or do something at school that is not above board, I will bring upon myself suffering or consequences because of my sin and selfish choices. Another type of suffering would be suffering because of someone else's sinful, selfish choices. If someone decides in a marriage to cheat on you, well, their sin and their selfish choices is gonna have a tremendous impact on you. And just the world that we live in has been so impacted by sin. So that is a second type of suffering, just the impact of sin or other people's sin on our life. And a third type of suffering that we will go through or we can't experience is just what I would call spiritual attack. That there is a real enemy of God Satan, the devil, or Lucifer, whose one aim in his existence is to take people away, as far away from God as possible, and to make their life as miserable as possible. The church in Smyrna that we're looking at is enduring suffering and persecution for the latter two, because of people's sin and selfishness against them, and because of spiritual attack from the enemy himself. As we did last week, uh, when we read the letter uh, to the church, I had all of us stand. And we do that because as best as we understand church history, when the men and women would have received this letter, the entire church would have stood together and heard what this letter had to say to them as a church. So if you would, please stand with me, and I'm going to invite my good friend Scott to read Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 through 11.
1: Write this letter to the angel of the Church of Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death.
0: Thank you, Scott. We can go ahead and be seated. Now, imagine if you were the church of Smyrna and imagine that you gathered for a time of prayer, uh, a time to worship through song together, a time to hear someone bring a word of instruction or a word of encouragement, much like we will do today. Imagine, though, you not only see who's actually there, you kind of look around the space or the home that you're gathering in, and you not only see who's there, but imagine for a moment you notice who's no longer there. And you look around the room and you see that there were people who were once there, but they've gone missing. You see that people are now missing because the persecution was just too much for them. It was too hard, it was too painful, it was too real, it was too raw, and so they bailed. They said, I can't do this anymore. This is just too difficult. It's causing too much pain in my life. And so there's people who've gone missing because they've just walked away. But then you also notice other people who are not there anymore because they've been killed. You notice that people are missing because they have been imprisoned. And so imagine what it would be like for those men and women who not only see who's there, but they also see who's missing. They've gathered this in particular morning And it probably costs them something just to even gather. And you're you're thinking, gosh, I'm here. I just, I need some help. I need some encouragement. I need some comfort because what is happening to us is incredibly painful. The persecution is literally killing my friends. The persecution is literally taking people and imprisoning them. And then you hear this. To the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. Imagine hearing this letter is not only for us, but it is from Jesus himself. Jesus has sent us a message. Now, as I've been thinking about how encouraging this must have been to receive a letter from Jesus, what's not lost on me, And I don't think what would have been lost on them would, would be this reality. Jesus will give us what we need to keep us walking with him. Jesus will give not just you as a person, but give us as a people what we need so that we will continue to walk with him in the face of whatever we have to go through. Jesus will give us everything that we need to keep us moving forward with him. And what this church needed more than anything was not relief from the pain of persecution what they needed more than anything is what jesus gave them is a reminder of who he is so when jesus says from the one who is first and last he's reminding them that he is god he's reminding them that he is eternal that he is sovereign i don't know how suffering works in your life but suffering has a way in my life to cause loss of memory. Specifically, I forget who Jesus is. I forget what he's done. I forget what he's like. Pain, suffering, storms, trials has a way to just cause me to forget who he is. But what Jesus wants them to be reminded of is who he is, that he is God. And he uses a title that Most people in that church would have been very familiar with. It was a title reserved for God and God alone. In Isaiah chapter 44, when God is trying to encourage the people of Israel, he says this, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King Redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God. And so when Jesus is telling them, I am the first and the last, how would remembering that Jesus is God actually meet the needs of of men and women who are being persecuted to the point of death? And the answer is very simple. Jesus will have the last word. See, when suffering or storms or trials come, it's just easy to believe that the suffering, the storms, the trials is going to have the final word in your life. It's easy to think when you're in the thick of it, whatever that might be, that that very thing is going to have the final word. But Jesus wants this church in Smyrna to know, no, no, no. Persecution won't have the final word. Suffering won't have the final word. Storms won't have the final word. I will have the final word because I alone am God. That would have brought huge encouragement in the face of persecution. I, Jesus, will have the final word. But Jesus not only reminds them of his divinity, that he's eternal, that he is sovereign, will have the final word, but he also reminds them of his humanity. And so when Jesus says, who was dead... is now alive, Jesus is reminding them of, guys, I've walked this road before. I have walked down a painful road that was marked by suffering, that was marked by rejection, that was marked by persecution to the point of death. But when he says, I was dead, but now I'm alive, what Jesus is reminding them of, I conquered death. I conquered all of those things. I am alive. And so when we remember Jesus's humanity, It gives us an invitation that we can now relate with him, that we can connect with the one who went through suffering, the one who went through persecution. I don't know how it works for you, but I know when I'm going through something hard, what's most helpful for me in that moment is being able to connect with someone else who's gone through a very similar thing and came out the other side different. Whatever the hardship is, it is so helpful to connect with someone who's been there, someone who's walked that road. But someone who came out the other side, not bitter and jaded and angry, but came out the other side saying, but God used it for good. The author of Hebrews says this. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. The high priest of ours understands our weakness for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Listen to this invitation. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most see what we need most in the midst of whatever suffering that we might go through is not the suffering to end we often think that I'm going to find comfort on the other side of suffering I just need to get through this hard season whatever that might be But what Jesus reminds us in his humanity is this, comfort is not found outside suffering, comfort is found in walking with Jesus. Comfort is not going to be found once the suffering ends. True comfort, lasting comfort will be found when we walk with Jesus in the midst of it. And so after Jesus reveals, this is who I am, I am the first and the last, I am God, I was dead, but now I'm alive. Fully divine, fully man. He now wants to remind them of who they are. So it says in verse 9, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. This math equation doesn't make sense. Jesus says, I know about your suffering and I know about your poverty. In our metric, we would say suffering plus poverty equals just a miserable existence. But Jesus' math is very different than our math. Jesus tells this church, I know you're suffering and I know you're poverty, but I don't want you to forget you are rich. Clearly, Jesus is not talking about a worldly type of wealth. He's not talking about the church's balance sheet What Jesus is talking about is he's looking at the results of what suffering and poverty have stirred up or created in them. And he says, I know suffering and I know poverty, but it's done something in you. You have become rich, spiritually wealthy. I love how James, who is the brother of Jesus, how he talks about a spiritual wealth. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, and it will be, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Jesus looks at his church in Smyrna and he declares, you are rich. These storms, these trials, these persecutions have, have produced in you a spiritual wealth that cannot be taken away from you. I know this is hard, but God uses often uses suffering as a vehicle to create a people who maybe by the world standards have nothing, but by the standard, the only standard that matters, that we would have everything, that we would be considered spiritually wealthy in the eyes of God. Now, one would think that The next thing that Jesus would tell this church is simply, guys, it's over. You would think the very next thing that they would hear is, hey, well done. You have persecuted. You've gone through hardships. You've lost people. It is now over. It is finished. You guys finished the part of this suffering and it's done. It's over. But the very next thing that Jesus says is this, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You'll suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. I can only imagine what it must have been like for this church in Smyrna to hear the words, wait, I'm sorry, did he just say there's going to be more suffering? And at the hands of Satan himself, that more suffering is coming towards us? Did I just hear that clearly that he's reminded us that it's about to get even more uncomfortable than it already has been? What I love about what Jesus does for this church is he doesn't give them a pep talk. He doesn't just say, hey, buck up, camper, kind of just gut through this. What I love what Jesus does is he reminds them of something that I often forget, that we can often forget in the face of suffering, storms, trials, persecution. And it's this, Jesus is always win-win. Jesus is always win-win. If we have Jesus in life, you have everything. No matter what happens to you in this life, if you have relationship with Jesus, you have everything. No matter the storm, the suffering, the trial, the persecution, the hurt and the pain, the discouragement, disappointment. If you have Jesus and you still have all of those ever, other things... You have everything because you have Christ. And if you have Jesus in death, well, we still have everything because in this world, if we lose our lives because we claim the name of Christ, well, then Jesus reminds us that what awaits those who claim the name of Christ, even in death, you receive Christ. You receive literally the crown of life. Jesus wants them to know, wants us to know, that Jesus is always win-win, no matter what happens to us this side of heaven. If we have Christ, we have everything, in life or in death. Sixty years went by. The church in Smyrna received this letter from Jesus. And we know from the history that this church continued to face incredible opposition, incredible persecution. And in 155 AD, the pastor of this church was a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp was a close friend of John, the Apostle John, friend of Jesus John, the one who wrote Revelation, the Gospel of John as well. He was a student, a friend, a disciple of John's. And we know from what church history tells us how things ended for Polycarp. He was so leading the church in Smyrna to be strong, to be faithful, to keep walking with God in the face of persecution. And so Rome came after him. And this is, I'm going to read you a very short story of Polycarp's last moments. There, the chief of police met him, being Polycarp, and tried to persuade him as they sat beside him saying, what harm is there to say, Lord Caesar, and to save yourself? At first, Polycarp did not answer them, but when they persisted, he said, I'm not going to do what you advise me. And so then the proconsul tried persuading Polycarp, swear by the fortune of Caesar, change your mind, take the oath, and I shall release you. Curse Christ. And Polycarp said, 86 years, I have served him. He Never did me anything wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And the proconsul said, Well, I will have wild beasts. I shall throw you to them if you do not change your mind. But Polycarp said, Call them. Call them. For repentance from the better to the worse is not permitted. It is a noble thing to change from what is evil to what is good. He's giving the proconsul an opportunity to repent, but that only angered him. And again he said to him, I shall have you consumed with fire if you despise the wild beast, unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. For you do not know the fire of coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you will. And the crowd began to chant with one accord to have Polycop burned alive. Straight away then they set about him the material prepared for the fire. And when they were about to nail him to the wood, he said, leave me as I am. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the fire unmoved. Without the security you desire from the nails. And so they did not nail him to the wood. And Polycarp began to pray. I bless thee because thou hast deemed me worthy of this day and hour to take my part in the number of martyrs. For this and everything I praise thee. I bless thee. I glorify thee through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved servant, through whom be glory, to thee with him and the Holy Spirit both now and unto the ages to come. And with that prayer, they lit the fire and burned him to his death. When I read that story again this week, I couldn't get out of my heart and my head for this and everything I praise thee. Like, who says that? I'm about to be set upon fire because I'm following Christ. But for this moment right now, I still will praise you. And for everything else, for the years, the decades of pain and persecution and suffering, for everything else that I've had to endure for the name of Christ, I still will praise my Christ. It would be easy to assume that this type of thing no longer happens. That when the persecution that this church in Smyrna ended, that there has been no persecution or suffering like that, and that's just not true. Every single month, 255 Christians are killed every single month because they're Christians, and 104 are abducted. 66 churches, on average, per month are attacked, and 160 Christians are detained without trial and are imprisoned. Those are from the averages from 2017. So far in 2018 alone, 3,066 men and women, Christians, have already been killed. 1,252 have been abducted, and 793 churches have already been attacked so far in 2018 because of the name of Christ. Trends show that countries in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East are intensifying persecution against Christians. And they say that the most vulnerable. Of Christians are women who are often faced with double persecution, not only for their faith, but because of their gender. Most dangerous place if you're going to be a Christian to live in the world, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, Pakistan, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, and Iran. If you have moments today, and I know we all do, please visit opendoorsusa.org. It tells story after story after story of persecution that is happening. Like right now, men and women, because they claim the name of Christ, are being persecuted, imprisoned, but persecuted to the point of death. But as you start to pay attention to these 10 countries in particular, the churches that are being persecuted the greatest are growing the fastest. God uses persecution to help actually advance the cause of Christ. And so when you hear stories coming from North Korea or Somalia or Sudan or Yemen or Iraq, it is so mind-blowing that in the face of death, imprisonment, the church is growing. It is exploding, not because of how comfortable it is, but it's growing and exploding because of how much persecution is taking place. I know we live here in America and it is so easy to think we're removed from this type of persecution but as I've been really thinking and wrestling with this message to this letter in Smyrna God really laid on my heart one verse from 1 Corinthians and it says this, if one part suffers all parts suffer with it and this is a reference to the church, to the body of Christ, if there is some element of the body of Christ that is suffering, then we suffer too Like there should be something in us that hears that men and women who follow Christ like you follow Christ are being killed, are being tortured. We should feel that. We should feel the weight and the heaviness that should lead us to get to our knees and pray that they would be faithful like Polycarp in the church in Smyrna. That God would use their suffering to grow a spiritual wealth within them that they would stand for Christ no matter what stands against them. A missiologist that I was reading this past week said this, the comfortable experience of Christians in the West has actually been an anomaly in this regard. Because of the Christian heritage of Western civilization combined with a democratic freedoms and a historic rule of law, Western Christians have largely been left alone for their faith. Even today, as Western nations, that's us, become increasingly post-Christian, even anti-Christian, the opposition experienced by most Christians Goes little beyond mockery. However, there are signs that this protected status may be changing. If it continues to do so, it will simply put Western Christians in the same boat as their brothers and sisters all over the world. And so I would just ask will we remain faithful? Will we repent of just a desire to be comfortable? And will we remain faithful? And if the persecution comes in the f- face of mockery right now, or it comes in the loss of maybe a job title or status or resources, or it comes in the years or decades, persecution to the point of imprisonment and death, will we remain faithful?